Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, this is the episode that I think we both look forward to Love it. pretty much all year. All year. All year. For the third year in a row. It's the winner of our graduate student research contest. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> so this this entry really stood out. Um, it's uh, Our winner is named Patrick Conway. You're going to be hearing a lot about him. And uh, his topic was prison education. And it was something that I knew nothing about. And what really spoke to me was just how... The questions that Patrick asks are really things that consume you and I, Jack. Oh, totally. Yeah, there were so many good submissions this year. Uh, and, you know, ordinarily it would have been really hard to choose from among them. But I was really captivated by this question of, you know, who deserves schooling on the taxpayer's dime, right? It's something that we're concerned with at this show. We believe in the idea of public education, in the values that underlie public education. And here's a slightly different way of looking at it, right? Um, this is not in the public education system, yet it is something that we do as a public that is education and that taps into these same questions. What is education good for? Who deserves it? Who should pay for it? And how are we going to measure its effectiveness? And Jack, I think the really cool thing is that this is the third year we've done this contest and we are now accumulating a really impressive roster of winners and runners-up. Yeah, I'm just waiting for all these folks to be MacArthur geniuses and then, you know, we can... We can be geniuses by association. Uh, Since that's pretty much the only way we're going to be That's the only way we're going to get it. That's right, exactly. Um, yeah, people should go back and listen to the episode with last year's winner of the Graduate Student Research Contest, David Stevens. We also did an episode with the two runners-up, Mimi Arnold and Adam Kirk Edgerton. Uh, the year before, our winner was Elise Castillo. We did an episode with her. And our runner-up was Barry Goldenberg, and we did an episode with him. All of those episodes are really great. They're among my favorites when people ask me to, you know, please pick an episode that I should start with because our show really doesn't run sequentially. Wouldn't make a lot of sense if you started with episode one and then worked your way forward. Those are often the ones I point them to. And FYI, we will be doing a future episode with this year's runner-up. His name is LeVar Edmonds, and he's also doing really interesting research. He looked at graduates of historically black colleges and universities and just what what a huge benefit there is for students who end up having a teacher from one of these schools. Yeah, I'm definitely excited for that episode. And, uh, you know, again, I, I want to point people back to all of the previous episodes with our graduate student research contest entrance and to encourage people it's not too early to start thinking about next year's contest. We roll it out in the fall usually and then have you on sometime in the spring and then the episodes air in the summer. It's a long process, but it's worth it. So start thinking about it. Thank you. 
now to our winner. His name is Patrick Conway, and he's a doctoral candidate at the Lynch School of Education at Boston College. And you already know that his research subject is prison education, specifically higher education in prison. But to understand how Patrick came to focus on how we justify higher education in prison, we need to know a little about his story. A few details. He grew up in Portland, Maine. His mother taught English as a second language, and asylum seekers were a regular presence in their home. And Patrick says that experience of growing up with a sense that not everyone was as fortunate as him really shaped him and a sense of what he wanted to do. So he graduates from college and he heads to Washington, D.C. to become a criminal defense investigator. Most of my time was spent interviewing witnesses in communities in throughout D.C., primarily southeast D.C., a lot of the cases, at least at that time, I'm not sure if it's changed, but a lot of the cases were coming from sort of southeast D.C. And so it was knocking on doors and speaking with witnesses, oftentimes speaking with victims, and then testifying in court, taking photographs of crime scenes, um, all sorts of subpoenaing documents. So it, it was just a very sort of fast-paced job, which at that point especially was 100% what I wanted. I was very invested in what I was doing, which was great. But doubts were starting to creep in, especially about the career ladder that he was supposed to be on. The next step after being an investigator is typically law school. So that's where Patrick was headed. It felt to me like a little bit of a cog in the machine that you're always a stopgap. So you're always sort of dealing with problems when they've gotten to the point that there's not much else to be done than just defend that client as best as you can. While I really respect that work, it wasn't something that I I thought long-term for myself I really, really wanted. I mean, I was literally at the the point of moving to go to a university, looking into apartments, when I decided this is not what I want for myself. And it was extremely difficult for me at the time, but I'm glad now that I did it. There's one more piece of this story that's important here. One night, Patrick is out on an investigation. He's supposed to serve a subpoena, but the front of the house is all boarded up. So he does what any intrepid investigator does. He heads around back to look for signs of life. And the second I got back there, someone had come up around the other end. They must have seen me from the street, and they had a gun pointed at me. Luckily, I didn't have a whole lot on me. But, you know, it was relatively traumatic just in terms of having a gun pointed at you. He hit me with a gun. There were two other guys that came up on the other side. But it kind of rattled me for a little while afterward. Just my job was going out into communities and trying to speak with witnesses. But it also, I think, in a sense of just trying to figure out what I still wanted to do, it had an effect of, in terms of resolving that situation, yeah, I guess if the police had caught him, some sort of base satisfaction would have been served for me of, like, you got caught. But beyond that, I I just, I sort of felt like the legal system didn't feel like it could resolve this. It didn't feel capable of really resolving this issue to a way that would make me feel anything better. And so that's, I think, in part connected to why, even though I had really, like, admissions to Ivy League schools, I was at a certain level feeling very fortunate and proud of what I had accomplished. But I was just like, I don't want to, that doesn't seem like the space where I can do the most good. And so that's where I think some of the feelings of wanting to pursue other options came about. 
Spoiler, Patrick did finally figure out how to make a life out of the things he was so passionate about. He got a master's in English, realized he really loved teaching, but that interest in criminal justice, it just kept calling. So when he heard about a teaching opportunity in the prison education program at Boston University, he jumped at it. In 2014, he starts teaching writing at a women's prison in Framingham and a men's prison in Norfolk, and he loves it. I knew when I started it, right away that this is meaningful to me. I wanted in some format to pursue it, even though, again, there was not a clear path laid out for me there. And so I taught in that over the course of maybe four years and continued to really like it and and had the opportunity to even teach sort of American literature classes as part of it. And it just became very important to me to the point that I wanted to expand on the type of work that I was doing beyond just sort of teaching in the classroom, which I still love to do. But I wanted to think about, well, how can we make these opportunities more available? How can we develop these types of programs elsewhere? And that's kind of what got me into thinking about it as a doctoral program pursuit of research. Part of what Patrick found so rewarding in this work was the level of enthusiasm that these incarcerated students brought to his classes. For many students, it's the first time they're in the classroom. It's the first semester, and I think for a lot of them, they put quite a bit of emphasis on the writing class because they recognize that as an area that's going to apply to most of the classes that they're in. So they're usually very eager because it's the first class and because I think they recognize it as a skill that they want to work on. So I think especially for the first time a faculty member goes in to teach, that's usually the first thing that kind of stands out is how eager the students really are for the coursework which I think on, on regular campuses, you, you sometimes there's a little bit more of a range. <laughs> and the more time he spent in those prison classrooms, first through the Boston University program, later in a new program created by Boston College, the more he could see the power of higher education for prisoners. What really motivates them to be there is just the recognition of this is a space inside the prison that for two hours, you don't really feel incarcerated for that time. Not completely, of course, but you're treated as an actual student and scholar and learner and someone who has interests. And there's a chance to develop your skills, the way you think about yourself, the way you think about your community. You're allowed to explore goals that you have on your own. And that just does not exist anywhere else. So even even if it didn't just sort of lead A to B to a job at the end of this, it's obvious that there's value there in terms of what it does to sustain people inside prison. So to sum up our story so far, Patrick has finally found a calling and he's found a research topic. Patrick, take it away. My interest is in thinking about how we justify and defend these types of programs. And typically the way it's discussed is at a at both at sort of policy level, but also within media. And I think even just talking with people, what you recognize is it's almost always discussed through the lens of recidivism, sort of the rate people return to prison, and then what can be gained in terms of taxpayer savings that you save on the back end of people not being incarcerated. And that to me was so separate from why I was interested in doing the work that I started thinking of that doesn't jibe with me in terms of why this is needed. And so I think there are more sort of foundational, principle-based reasons for why we should be supporting these programs. And that's what I started to research was how it's discussed in the media, what are other options for thinking about why we need these programs and why we should be supporting these programs. 
how that sort of bleeds into the classroom in terms of our conception of the students who are involved, as well as just investigating what students themselves value in the education that they're receiving. Where do they find meaning and purpose in the education that they're receiving? Let's start with that question of how we justify prison education programs. Chances are, if you've heard anything about prison education, it's that it's a good investment because it saves taxpayers money in the long run. Patrick says he understands the power of that argument, but that ultimately the economic case is not enough. I think just at sort of a a basic level, it seems like a really easy way to convince someone is just, hey, we're all going to be saving money, and isn't it great people will come out of prison and stay out of prison? Which at a certain level, of course, that is extremely important. But I just think it's as, as a sort of full support of a program, I think falls really short and I think is also susceptible to... What if studies show that it doesn't have this dramatic effect? Or what if if we're not saving money? Then does that mean that we shouldn't be supporting these programs? I think we need more, like, deeper reasons for supporting these programs. Defining prison education solely in terms of taxpayer savings and recidivism also ends up limiting it. Why, for example, do students need to be reading Of Mice and Men or The Great Gatsby, two of Patrick's favorite texts to assign, when they could be learning job skills? If you have faculty members going in there thinking that the primary purpose is to make sure that people don't recidivate, that they don't return to prison, then it's almost always going to be a vocational orientation. And I think some of that is needed, but I think it treats students as though they're a problem. And it positions the instructor as someone almost like you're trying to fix the student. And I think just even at a pedagogical level, I think that's oftentimes the opposite of what's needed or desired. I think oftentimes it's the opportunity to understand yourself better, your communities better, society writ large, history, all these opportunities that I think oftentimes your quote-unquote typical college student would take for granted, I think are extremely valued by the vast majority of incarcerated students. Well, now we're going to meet one of those students. When Patrick arrived to teach his very first writing class at MCI Norfolk back in 2014, J.D. was one of the students in the class. My name is Jesus David Linares, otherwise known as J.D. No one calls me Jesus. My mother named me J.D., and uh, I am J.D. Both teacher and student were brand new, so I asked J.D. what he remembers about that inaugural session. He must have been like, I am in a prison right now. And there are a bunch of, you know, yes, these guys are human beings. Yes, they're, you know, they're they're worthy. They have intrinsic value. They are they're 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 worthy of respect and honor and dignity. But I am very much still in a prison. And this is this is intimidating. All of this is intimidating. So I felt like that might have been what he was feeling on his end. And for me, I was thinking, this guy knows a lot of big words, and he has read a lot of books. What am I doing here? I am such an imposter. I was, I was probably just as intimidated, honestly. J.D. is one of 21 students who Patrick interviewed during the course of his research. He talked to them about prison education and what the program meant to them, but also about their lives prior to going to prison. And he says that there was one theme that came up over and over again. One of the themes that kind of has emerged is a sense of sort of feeling imprisoned before even incarceration, whether that's a family life that is not happy or abusive whether it's an addiction problem, whether it's a 
school system that they feel like did not support them or failed them in certain ways, or a community or, or feeling oppressed in certain ways, but that they're, they're already carrying oftentimes these types of sentiments into their incarceration. These programs are, for many of them, the first time they're being exposed to a liberal arts education that's a chance to expand on their interests, to explore history, to explore the wonders of sort of math and science, to improve their writing skills, that they never even had that opportunity before incarceration. And that was really J.D.'s story. To understand how he ended up in Patrick's classroom in the first place, we need to hear a little more about it, starting at the beginning. Well, my parents were young parents, um, teenagers, 16 and 17. My mother, she had a lot of trauma growing up, and so did my father. And they had a lot of unresolved issues. And that, along with them being children, raising children, was, like, disastrous. As far back as he can remember, J.D.'s family life was full of turmoil. It was at that age that I started to realize that I was being abused and being mistreated. So I started to fight back rebelliously in school and also in my household. I started reacting and and, and being um, and rebelling in some ways. And I started realizing that my father, my biological father, apparently didn't love me. That's how I received it, the neglect. Um, he was never part of my life. And my stepfather apparently uh, felt the same way, you know. I guess there was apathy there. Uh, There was just some sort of indifference there. I don't know if it was hatred or indifference. Either way, the way that I received it was um, painfully, you know, it, it affected me horribly. By the time J.D. was a teenager, it was all too much. After he was sexually abused by a man he was working for and his mother relapsed into a heroin addiction, J.D. says he just shut down emotionally. He was bouncing from school to school, and although he was a good student when it was a subject that he cared about, the efforts by his teachers to try to help him just weren't enough. There were many teachers that cared for me, that showed interest in me. Educators that that wanted to see me perform to the best of my abilities. The problem was is that I couldn't I couldn't believe them. And you'll find this with lots of kids that grow up in these situations. You have this teacher that you see for a few hours a week, and outside of school, you have no relationship. There's no reason for you to believe that they really, really do care about you, especially considering that the ones that are near you are hurting you or neglecting you. This was also when J.D. began to realize that violence gave him a sense of power and control he'd never felt before. He describes it as feeling intoxicating, and it didn't end well. By the time J.D. was 21, he was in prison for a long list of violent crimes. I'm speeding ahead here for the purposes of this story, but he would spend the next decade in prison, mostly at a medium security facility in Norfolk, Mass., southwest of Boston. And, of course, it's here. Here that JD's story intersects with Patrick's because not long after JD gets to MCI Norfolk, he learns about the prison education program and he decides to go for it. I felt like I was bested by this demon, by this this failure of not being able to rise to the challenge um, educationally. You know, this this I felt like I was always running from it. So I I just said, you know what? I'm just being frank, I said, screw this. <laughs> I I'm going for it. I am going for it. I am going to study. I am going to work hard. And I 
tested in and and lo and behold all those you know years of running away from these subjects i i mastered them to the best of my ability at the time and i passed the test and bam i was in boston university i was officially in college so that was pretty cool so <laughs> jd was hooked and he says that the experience of being part of that program started to change both the way he and the other students saw themselves and how they interacted with other people it was a major self-esteem booster for me and my friends when we faced ourselves with situations where, you know, we could be violent maybe in, in, in prison, in the yard or in our cell block. Um, maybe someone is speaking to us in a way that reminds us of the way that fathers used to speak to us or something. Maybe they're hitting a nerve that causes us to want to behave violently or to run to drugs or to do something that could compromise our education. We think about it and we say to ourselves, no, that education is pretty valuable. And I felt really freaking good in that classroom. And when I give a presentation or when I get a chance to write a stellar paper, man, I feel good about that work. I am not risking that for anything. That is worth more than my pride in this moment. My education and my, these opportunities they're worth more than, than, than this momentary satisfaction of like defending myself through violence or escaping into drugs or something like that. that. That is worth so much more because I am worth more. It's kind of hard to imagine now, but JD says that he was originally very doubtful about going the college route. When his friend George Vicente encouraged him to apply, JD wasn't that interested because he thought it made much more sense to focus on a trade. He encouraged me to try, and I just, you know, I, I, I blew it off. I just thought to myself, ah, oh, man, I already tried that before in life. You know, if anything, I'll try to get into a welding program or some sort of trade, which, of course, is, is I mean, valuable. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what degree you have. If your roof is leaking, you're going to call the tradesman to come help you, or, or you bought a house off of someone built by a tradesman. So it's definitely not like one is better than the other. I just felt like I could, you know, one was more attainable to me. Patrick says that JD's dilemma really sums up the debate over prison education, especially as a growing number of online providers seek to get in on the action. For a whole host of reasons, students are facing things in their lives, and education is such an opportunity to explore that, that if you just have a purely vocational orientation or career-driven orientation, I think you're missing an opportunity for people to develop sort of deeper understandings of themselves and their communities in a way that I think would benefit ourselves and communities. <laughs> and I think it has become to a degree a battleground for this because there are obviously a lot of online universities trying to be in prison settings as well that I think have oftentimes have a different conception of what's needed and what should be. When to me, I think even just having that human contact, that alone is so important in these settings that while I think there's still space for online learning in prisons, I think you should be really aware of what potentially can be lost. As for what can be done to strengthen these programs, Patrick asked his former students for their thoughts. At the top of the list, expand who gets to participate. Right now, because slots in the Boston University and Boston College programs are so limited, competition to get in is intense. 
As for JD, he says he'd like to see more of a focus on helping students continue their schooling when they get out of prison. He was released in 2016, still a few credits shy of getting his BA. And suddenly this thing that was so important to him when he was behind bars felt very remote. Uh, as soon as I left prison, uh, the real world smacked me right in my face. I have no job. I have very little savings. I don't even know how to enroll into college, even if I wanted to. And even if I wanted to, it was a luxury considering that I was an ex-felon with no skills and in need of in a, a, a paycheck. J.D. does have plans to finish that degree, by the way. As for Patrick, he's entering the final throes of his dissertation. And while he doesn't know quite what the future holds, he knows what's important to him. Using his platform as a teacher, a writer, and a researcher to make the case that the way we think about criminal justice is missing something fundamental. I think the way we treat crime in this country, (laughs) largely, it's to perceive it all as individual failings, that everything is an individual failure. That's the only reason someone can end up in prison. I think if you have that perspective, then of course, recidivism and taxpayer savings are what you're going to look at. It's like, well, did you manage to reform yourself or did you not? That's all we really care about. Sitting in courtrooms, you know, you'd have be waiting on a case and You'd have to wait for a while because the courts move extraordinarily slow. It's just a constant stream of mostly young men being brought through day after day after day after day. And I think if you sit there long enough and you work on cases long enough, you start thinking, this cannot just be all individuals who are failing here. There's some larger failure that's taking place. And it might be at family levels. It might be at community levels. It might be at policing levels. It might be at all sorts of range of levels. But to think that you're going to say, well, 100% of the blame or guilt goes on the individual, I think partitioning out blame and guilt, there's some culpability that goes beyond, obviously, the individual, and determining percentages is impossible, of course. But I think once you recognize that, to me, it means that, well, that requires that we have some sort of ethic of care, some type of civic responsibility or duty to people who end up incarcerated. Congratulations to Patrick Conway for taking the top prize in our graduate student research contest. Thanks also to JD for sharing his story. And Jack and I will be right back to talk about the myriad ways that our eyes have been opened by learning about prison education. So Jack, I was in the process of putting this episode together and then I happen upon a tweet and it's from... President Joe Biden, and he's announcing his massive education investment plan. And it starts with him saying that in America in the 21st century, 12 years of education is no longer enough to compete. And well, you can probably imagine what happened next. You tweeted back at him and uh, he changed his mind. That did not happen. I had a strong reaction. Uh-huh. I, I, and it was expressed via Twitter. It, it was. And, but it really got me thinking. It got me thinking that when we listen to Patrick talk about the, the limit, limitations and repercussions of talking about the purpose of prison education in this way, it seems really obvious. And yet, I guess that a lot of people, when they hear Joe Biden talk about public education in terms of competition and defining it in economic terms, that it doesn't seem so weird to them. Yeah, it really is the 
the, I almost said the fish in which we swim. That's not what the phrase is. Jack has been canoeing, so a lot of his references will be river-related. Too, too, too close to the Canadian border. I'm struggling to translate myself back into English. Um, the, it really reveals the water in which we swim, right? Where education is so often justified as an instrumental aim, right? That we pay for public education because it produces return on investment. Of course, we don't think about this when we're thinking about the education of our own children, right? That's not the only reason we're educating our kids. That's not why we're sending them to school. But when we are inhabiting the role of taxpayer, we are often thinking about return on investment, right? What is my taxpayer dollar going to get me in terms of things like reducing incarceration rates, which are really expensive, or keeping people off of welfare, which can be expensive, though it's certainly nowhere near as expensive as conservatives often claim it is. Um, so if we think about education that way, then you know the, the way this eventually plays out is that everybody learns a trade except for you know the, the hyper elite, uh, who will have whatever kinds of tokens and credentials are needed in order to secure a liberal education for themselves. Uh, you know, I don't mean that in the political sense, right? A sort of full uh, education as we understand it now. And we will only justify further education for people in as much as it will enable them to become taxpayers themselves. Uh, who can take care of themselves economically. That's how this eventually plays out, as opposed to thinking about the way that Patrick is talking about prison education, right? Using a moral framing rather than an instrumental framing. And Jack, I know it must have been hard for you to remain so quiet during that whole episode and not even get to pipe up once. But I was imagining that as Patrick talked about the role of the media in shaping this particular way of, of how we understand prison education, I was imagining that this would really speak to you and that you would immediately understand its relevance to K-12 education. Was I right? <laughs> as always, Jennifer, as sometimes, Jennifer, as, as let's strike a balance there. As, as, much of the time, Jennifer, you are right. Um, and yeah, I just think it's so fascinating and so under-discussed, the role that the media plays in helping us understand how our schools are doing, what the purpose of school is, what's going on in the nearly 100,000 K-12 schools out there, as well as you know what's going on in higher ed or informal education. Um, you know, as our regular listeners know, one of my favorite facts comes from the annual Phi Delta Kappa poll, which finds every year that there's this huge divide between the way that Americans rate their own schools, the schools that their children attend, and the way that they rate the nation's schools. So a clear majority gives uh, the nation's schools a C or a D grade on an A through F scale. And that same percentage, roughly two-thirds of Americans, give their own kids' schools an A or a B. And there are some people who suggest, um, I, I think insultingly, that Americans just can't face the facts that their kids don't go to good schools. And I think there's a better explanation, which is that Americans do know 
how their own kids are doing. They see them at the end of the day every day. They watch them develop over time, and they actually have personal interactions with the educators in the building. Instead, what they don't know is how the 98,000 schools their kids don't attend are doing, right? What's happening there? How do they learn about those schools? And the way that most of us learn about those schools is by reading media accounts. And actually, a colleague and I recently completed a study where we found that the narrative about America's quote-unquote failing schools actually started first as an abstract national narrative and only later got picked up at the local level, right? So this is not something that's bubbling up from below where people are talking about their actual failing schools and then that's being picked up at the national level. It really ran the other way. And so I just found it so interesting to listen to Patrick talking about the role that media plays in crafting our perceptions here, in framing the way that we understand education and its purpose. And, and this is happening too, right? In that Biden tweet, in the same way that Donald Trump was doing a sort of end run around the traditional mainstream media, um, we now see people using social media to craft their own kinds of narratives, except in this case, it's, it's the same kind of narrative that we have long heard, right? It's this establishment narrative about the purpose of education being really one that frames education as an instrumental good rather than as something, say, about the development of full human potential. Well, Jack, I have to say that when you came up with the idea for the Graduate Student Research Contest three years ago, I had my doubts. I thought, gosh, this sounds like it could be really boring. And it really turned out to be the best thing we've done. The quality of the applicants gets higher and higher each year. Um, in fact, we heard from a number of people this year who said they really wanted to enter, but they weren't sure that their research was, have you heard, ready. And, and so I was just thrilled to get to share this winning project. And best of all, later this summer, we're going to be featuring our runner-up. Yeah, and if people haven't listened to the episodes that we've done with previous winners and runners-up, uh, you should definitely go check those out in our archive. There are five pieces of graduate student research that are just lingering there waiting for you to listen to uh, wherever you get our podcast. And Jack, I decided that as a special reward for you, uh, out of appreciation for your hard work on this show, and you for are not you are not going to lure people to the paywall this week. No, well, I am going to lure them, but that you and I are actually going to take a little break from all of our edu talk, and we're just going to talk as one co-host to another about what we've been reading. How does that sound? Oh my sound? gosh, that, that actually sounds great, although I'm going to have to remember the name of the book I'm currently reading. But, but yes, that's, that's perfect. So if that speaks to you, listener, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast and you'll see all the cool things you can get just by supporting us to the tune of a couple dollars a month. And if you don't want to support us that way, that's okay too. We would love it if you would leave us a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcast. Did I do that right, Jack? I see what you're trying to do here, Jennifer. You're, you're shouldering me out of the way. L listen, listeners. 
don't let her, don't let her do this to you. You know what you want to hear. You want to hear that we're all in this together. You don't need to throw your coin our way. Just show a little love uh, on on Twitter. We're at Have You Heard Pod. Um, sure, go on and give us a rating. But even better is when you write reviews. I mean, the the positive ones uh, are the ones we want to see, of course. But those are so fun. Uh, the Have You Heard mailbag is fun to go through, and it's always really cool when we know that you have shared the episode uh, that you just listened to with somebody who you think might enjoy it. Some of you do that on Twitter and, and tag the uh, podcast handle or tag us on it. And that's always fun to, to see that you thought the show was good enough to share with somebody else. Well, Jack, you may have been in the mountains and on the streams these past few weeks, but you haven't dropped a step. <laughs> Uh, you just want me to come beyond the paywall. <laughs> <laughs>